Well, welcome back to our New Testament survey. We're working our way through uh, the books of the New Testament, uh, looking at a different book each week, and we are this evening looking at the book of Hebrews. We have worked our way through uh, Paul's epistles, uh, through his letters to the churches, and then uh, his letters to individuals, the pastoral epistles and, and Philemon. Uh, and so this evening we come to uh, the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, now this one is a little bit different than the others that we have looked at uh, in that the first question that we have answered about each of these is, who is the author? So let me ask you, who is the author of Hebrews? Right answer. The Holy Spirit is the author of Hebrews. What else do we know about the author? Well, we don't. He doesn't tell us uh, who, the, uh, who the human author is here at the beginning of the letter, as Paul does in, in all of his letters, and John and Peter identify themselves. The author of Hebrews does not. So uh, we don't know who it is. Now, we do know uh, from chapter 2, verse 3, uh, that it is not uh, one of the, the 12 apostles. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, the author says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Uh, so this was not one of those who heard him because he's writing about having heard this message from those who heard the Lord. So uh, this was likely not Peter or John or one of the other apostles. Uh, so, who could it have been? Well, there are some indications uh, that over the years have caused people to uh, think that Paul might actually have been the author. If we look at uh, chapter 10, verse 34, uh, he's speaking to his audience, his readers, says, For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. So having compassion on me and my, my chains sounds like Paul and some things he has written uh, in other places. Uh, we also know from the final uh, verses of the book in Hebrews 13, uh, at the very, very end, he says in verse 23, Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. So again, it kind of sounds like Paul, but... Not exactly, because Paul refers to Timothy normally as his son, and here it refers to Timothy as brother Timothy, our brother Timothy. So uh, some have taken these indications to say, well, maybe Paul is the author of this. Some have said Luke. Others have said Apollos or various people. But the truth of the matter is we simply don't know who the human author is. Uh, but we do know that the church very, very early on uh, has accepted this letter to the epistles as being uh, part of the Holy Scriptures, inspired by the Spirit for the sake of his church. So there are references to uh, the book of Hebrews in the writings of the early church fathers as early as the, the second century, mid-second century. So uh, we take it that it is part of the scriptural canon. When was it written? Well, again, we don't have any clear indication other than, as we'll see as we work our way through it, uh, the references here to Christ being greater than the temple, greater than the Old Testament forms of worship, would seem to indicate that this was written before 70 A.D. 
before the temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, so that would once again kind of put it in a position where it could have been written by Paul or Luke or Apollos or any one of these men who was uh, serving the churches at that time. So why was this uh, letter written? And we do know that it is a letter. There are various theories. Some have uh, postulated a theory that this is actually a sermon or a series of sermons. Uh, And that's possible that it could be uh, some sermons or teachings that the Apostle Paul had taught that Luke later wrote, uh, recorded, and put in the form of a letter. But he does say in verse 22 at the end of the book, chapter 13, that I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. So this obviously is a written appeal. Uh, So even if it originally had its founding in some uh, sermons that were delivered orally, uh, this was written as a letter. But what was the occasion for the writing of it? Well, you know, as we've looked at Paul's letters to the churches and to the individuals, we've seen that Uh, Most of the churches that he's writing to, in fact, all the churches he's writing to, were predominantly uh, comprised of Gentile believers with a few uh, Jewish believers mixed in. And so Paul would write to these Gentile churches to encourage them in the faith, to encourage them that they did not have to convert to Judaism in order to be Christian, uh, and to deal with the various circumstances of those churches. The letter to the Hebrews here is kind of the reverse of that situation. It appears as if the majority uh, of this audience are Jewish Christians, uh, maybe with some Gentiles uh, as well, but majority Jewish audience. Uh, It appears uh, from chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, that they have uh, endured some persecution uh, at some time. It seems that they are being tempted to return to Old Covenant forms of worship. So unlike the Gentiles that Paul had to encourage uh, not to go down that path, they were being told by uh, the circumcision party that they needed to be circumcised or obey these various laws to become Jewish in order to be Christian. It seems here that this is a group of people who have come out of Judaism, have accepted Christ as the Messiah, and now they're considering going back to some of those old covenant forms of worship and Paul is or the author here is encouraging them uh, to endure uh, to stand firm in the faith and trust in Christ and not go back to those old covenant forms of worship so that is that's the occasion and kind of the purpose as well it's to exhort the believers to trust uh, predominantly in the supremacy of Christ over the old covenant uh, and so we'll see that that is the major theme of the letter as we work through it. Uh, if, we were, if I was to outline this, I would outline it uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 as kind of a prologue and introduces the main theme of the, the letter. Then beginning in verse 5 going through the end of chapter 2 would be Christ superior to the angels. Chapters 3 through 6 would be Christ superior to the old covenant. Chapters 7 through 10 would be Christ superior to the priesthood or Christ as our great high priest. Chapters 11 and 12 then would be persevering faith, and then chapter 13 would be final exhortations and the benediction. And so uh, the theme really is the supremacy of Christ. That's the main theme, uh, that Jesus is greater than these old covenant forms. Uh, You know, if we think back to uh, Genesis, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, 
fell into sin. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And so when God meets with them, what happens? God fashions for them coverings made of animal skins, which mean that an animal died so that they could be covered. And so that's the first indication we have in Scripture of the death of an animal in a sacrificial sort of way to cover the sins of mankind. Uh, And they're exiled from Eden in the wake of that. Well, as the story continues, uh, and you end up with the nation of Israel descended from Jacob, uh, comes out of Egypt in the exile and is constituted as a nation, Moses gives them the law. And so the book of Leviticus uh, is very consumed with all the various sacrifices uh, that are to be offered in the temple, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple for the sins of the people. And so there's multitude of different uh, sacrifices that are offered daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, all these sacrifices that are continually offered uh, for the sins of the people. But then, uh, as the story progresses, uh, when we get to the book of Isaiah, even earlier, because we see David making mention of the fact that the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy God. But when we get to the book of Isaiah, uh, we find passages like this in Isaiah 53, uh, verses 10 and 11. He's talking about uh, the servant of God, the, the suffering servant who will come. And he says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so we see that in the prophets there was this anticipation that there would come in the last days uh, one who would offer a sacrifice, who would bear the sins of God's people, Uh, who actually would atone for their sins in a way that uh, the blood of bulls and goats could not. And so then, of course, we get to the Gospels, and what is one of the first things we hear about Jesus, for instance, in the Gospel of John? John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and declares boldly, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is this sacrifice, this suffering servant who is offered by God uh, as an, an atonement for the sins of his people. Uh, so that, that's the major theme of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the better sacrifice, uh, that he's the better priest, in fact. He's not just the sacrifice, he's the priest who offers the sacrifice. Uh, so we saw uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden, which served as a sort of temple where God met with man. And Adam was told, instructed to tend and keep the garden. That is, he was to fulfill the duties of a priest in the temple, maintaining uh, this space where God meets with man. Of course, he fails in this, uh, right? He does not tend the garden. He allows the serpent to come in and to uh, corrupt it with lies. He fails to properly mediate the word of God uh, to the rest of humanity, allowing Satan to tell his lies and not refuting him and not kicking him out of the garden. He fails uh, in his mission to expand the borders of the garden, to fill the earth, to take dominion over it. And so he's failed in this. Uh, He's disobeyed the word. He's not kept the temple garden pure, and he did not expand its borders. Uh, Israel then is constituted as a nation, and we're told in Exodus chapter 15 that they were to be a kingdom of priests. 
So they were now to take this role that Adam had been Adam's previously. They're entrusted with the word of God. They are to be priests mediating that word to the rest of the world. They are given a tabernacle where God will meet with man. They are to keep it pure and they are to uh, spread this message to the rest of the world. And again, uh, they fail in this, right? They, they keep it to themselves. They fail to keep their worship pure. Uh, and so they, they fail in this. And, and they, just like Adam being expelled from the garden, they are expelled from the land. They come back to the land, but then Jesus comes. Christ shows up in their midst, and what does he do? He expels unclean spirits, purifying the land, he expels false teachers from the temple. Uh, he is God's word to mankind in all truth and purity. And at the end of the Gospels, as he ascends to the throne, to the right hand of the Father, he sends his body, the church, which is the temple of the living God, to go to the whole world, to expand those borders to the whole world, uh, just as Adam had initially been told to do. And so, unlike Adam or Aaron, Christ succeeds in these things. And so, that is the major theme of the book of Hebrews, is the the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ over uh, these old covenant norms. So I want to look at the prologue in some detail and then we'll move through uh, the rest of the book a little bit quicker. But as we look at the prologue in chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, let's read this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." Uh, So this introduces the major themes uh, of the book. Uh, In verse 1, we're told that God spoke to the patriarchs in various ways. Uh, And so we think about this. Uh, Of course, Abraham is called a prophet. Uh, We know that there are various prophets that God spoke through. But even as he speaks his word to the prophets, how does this come about? Uh, Through visions, uh, through dreams through angelic messengers, uh, and through direct communication at times as God speaks to the patriarchs and to the prophets. And so that was how God communicated in the past. But then in verse 2, we're told that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now the last days, of course, is the time period in which we live, uh, the time between the first and the second advent of Christ, Uh, his Son being Jesus, who we are told, is the heir of all things. God has appointed him the heir of all things. This recalls to our minds Isaac, who Abraham appointed the heir of all things in his household uh, as a picture of Christ. Adam would have ruled as a king and a priest over humanity had he obeyed, uh, but he didn't. Uh, Isaac inherited from Abraham what Abraham had to give him, but he didn't inherit all things. He didn't inherit the land. Even though he was living in it, he had not received that inheritance yet, and we'll see that later in the book of Hebrews, but Christ has inherited all things, and we see that he is, in fact, the creator 
that he has authority and power over all things because he is the one through whom all things were made. In verse 3, uh, we see that he is the brightness of his glory, that is God's glory, and the express image of his person. So uh, he is superior to Adam. Adam was created in the image of God, but Christ is the express image of God's person and the brightness of his glory. So he exceeds Adam in that way. He is the better priest uh, than Aaron is, uh, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. So he's successful uh, where Aaron failed. He purges the sins of his people. Uh, He's a better king than David uh, because he actually has this power. He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. So uh, Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king, uh, superior to everyone who has filled those offices in the past. And finally, in verse 4, we're told that he has become so much better than the angels. Now, why would the author of Hebrews be so concerned with the angels? Because the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 will be concerned with Christ being superior to the angels. Uh, Some commentators seem to think that there may have been uh, some sort of false worship of angels happening. I kind of tend to agree with Calvin on this note and think that's not what was happening, but rather uh, what was going on is that these uh, readers, the people who received this letter, were considering returning uh, to the old covenant forms of worship, which were mediated, we're told in chapter 2. Speaking of the old covenant, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and so he's saying uh, the angels were the messengers of the Old Covenant. And so as they're considering returning to the Old Covenant, they're thinking, well, think about all of those miraculous instances when God spoke to people. He appeared to Abraham as, as in the form of angel, angelic beings and spoke to him. And, and that, that seems miraculous, and, and we want to go back to that. And, and so the author of Hebrews here is showing us how Christ is superior uh, to those experiences that the patriarchs had. He is superior to Adam, he is superior to Aaron, and he is superior to the angels. Uh, And so let's deal with the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, dealing with Christ's superiority over the angels. In verses 5 through 13, we see that he is superior to the angels because he is the exalted Lord. Uh, In verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he's quoting here from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel, uh, quoting these Old Testament passages that Christ is the Son of God from Psalm 2. If you go back and read the rest of Psalm 2, you'll see that the Son there rules the nations with a rod of iron. He takes dominion over the whole earth, just as Adam had been instructed to do. Uh, In 2 Samuel 7, you'll see is where God makes a covenant with David and promises him that he will have a son who will sit on the throne forever, who will establish the throne and the kingdom forever and shepherd God's people. So Christ is both the Son of God from Psalm 2 and the Son of Man, the Son of David from 2 Samuel 7. He is the Lord. In verse 6, he then quotes from Psalm 97, verse 7, uh, that the angels are to worship him. 
So if the angels worship him, of course he is superior to them. He is God. The angels, we are told in verse 7, are spirits. They're ministering servants. Uh, They're not the Lord. Christ is the Lord. Uh, So he is greater than they are. And and he is, we're told in verse 8, quoting from Psalm 45, he is the son of God. Uh, And then in verse 10, quoting from Psalm 102, uh, we're told that he is the creator, uh, that he laid the foundations of the earth. He's greater than the angels because he is their creator. They are spirits created by God. Uh, In verse 13, quoting from Psalm 110, we see that Christ reigns. Uh, he, He sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God the Father until your enemies are your footstools. Angels are the servants, but Christ is sovereign over all. In chapter 2, then, we begin with verses 1 through 4, which is the first of five passages that we'll find in the book of Hebrews that warn us of something. Uh, So we have these warning passages. This is the first one here. This is uh, concerned with a warning against drifting away from Christ and back to the Old Covenant. And he tells us that we must pay careful attention to the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Christ will reign in the kingdom, not the angels. And therefore, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So we are to uh, carefully consider what we have been taught so that we don't drift away from the truth. So then in verse, beginning in verse 5, uh, he begins to address uh, Christ being greater than the angels. Uh, and so he says in verse 5 that, that he, will, uh, he, has put, he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Rather, he has put it in subjection to the Son. In verse 6, he quotes from Psalm 8, uh, which if you go back and you read Psalm 8, you'll see that uh, it's an anticipation uh, of an, an Adam-like figure that will come, who will succeed where Adam failed. Uh, so G.K. Beale says uh, in the story retold that Christ fulfills Psalm 8's expectation of a coming Adam figure by becoming an obedient son of man who rules with faithfulness over God's enemies, adheres to God's commandments, and suffers on behalf of others. Uh, and so even though Christ takes on flesh, and so in a sense is made lower than the angels, uh, he is actually superior to them uh, because he is this prophesied figure from the Old Testament. Uh, In verses 10 and 11, we see that Christ suffered, and since we are one with him, uh, he calls us his brethren, uh, that we should expect to suffer with him. In verse 14, we see that uh, Christ destroyed uh, the serpent, Uh, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So where Adam failed and did not expel the serpent from the garden, Christ actually defeats the serpent uh, just as it was promised that he would do. Uh, Interestingly, he says in verse 16, uh, for indeed he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So stop and think about that for a minute. There were angels who sinned, who fell into sin. They are not redeemed. 
The, the demons, the fallen angels who have rebelled against God will suffer for all eternity uh, in the lake of fire. But men who have fallen into sin can be redeemed by Christ because he took on flesh. He became a man that he might redeem us. So he doesn't redeem the angels, but he does redeem those men who are elect of God. And so this is why he was incarnated. And if we think about this, what, what the author of Hebrews is essentially telling them is these angels you're fascinated with who spoke in the Old Testament to the, to the patriarchs, they're servants. Christ is the sovereign Lord. They cannot be saved. You can because Christ took on flesh. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. None of the angels did that for you. Christ did. Christ did that for you. So why would you go from Christ back to something uh, that is based on angels as messengers rather than the Son as the messenger? In chapters 3 through 6, he then moves on to uh, discuss Christ's superiority over uh, the Old Covenant in all its various forms. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see that Christ is greater than Moses. Moses was a servant in the house of God, but Christ is the Son, and it is his house. It is the house that he has built. Uh, We are his house, uh, and so... Christ is superior to Moses. Of course, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant who gave the people of Israel the law of God. Uh, So if Christ is greater than Moses, he is greater than the mediator of the Old Covenant. Uh, Then in verse 7, moving on through chapter 4, verse 13, Uh, we see a second warning uh, is given here to persevere uh, in the faith, in good works, in order to attain our Sabbath rest. Uh, Psalm 95 is quoted extensively and repeatedly throughout this section uh, where it talks about uh, the first generation of Israel uh, who rebelled against God and therefore uh, were not allowed to enter the promised land. Because of their rebellion, they did not enter the land. They did not enter God's rest. Uh, In verse 14 of chapter 3, we see that if we persevere in faith in Christ, that we can partake of God's Sabbath rest in the land. Uh, They did not enter, we're told in verse 19, because of unbelief. Uh, Then in chapter 4, verse 3, we're told that we who have believed do enter God's rest. And then in in verse 4, we're told that God rested when he finished his works, right? So we think back to creation, the seven days of creation. God finished his work on the sixth day. On the seventh day, he rested. So when God's work was finished, he rest. And so in verse 10, we're told, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so the idea is, uh, think back to Ephesians 2, verse 10, right? That we were predestined according to his grace uh, for good works that we might walk in them. Uh, so when we have finished those good works for, that were prepared for us to do, uh, then we will enter God's rest. And so we are to be diligent uh, to enter that rest. He says in verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Uh, In verse 12 through 13, uh, he then says 
that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is a passage we should probably be very familiar with. Uh, what is this about? Well, if we think about it in context here, talking about um, being diligent to do our good works, uh, to persevere in the faith to the end, uh, if the word of God uh, is Christ, then what we're being told is that Christ is discerning and sharp. Uh, G.K. Beale says this uh, in regards to this passage. Uh, Sorry, not G.K. Beale, John Gill. He says, The apostle's meaning seems to be this, that whereas the soul and the spirit are invisible and the joints and the marrow are covered and hid, so sharp and quick-sighted and so penetrating is the divine word who is Christ that it reaches the most secret and hidden things of men. Christ knows what is in man and with and will accurately judge them. So we are to persevere to the end in our faith and in the good works that have been prepared for us because Christ knows. Christ will accurately discern uh, the truth of our faith. Our rest begins in the gospel, we're told in chapter 4, verse 3, but it's incomplete until the consummation of the kingdom. And that's why verse 9 tells us that there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, but we will enter it in the future uh, when our course of life is done. So this is a warning uh, to persevere in the faith, to continue in the faith and not to fall away from Christ chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10, uh, he then begins to discuss uh, this idea of Jesus as a high priest, that he is better than the angels because he is the son of God and he is the son of man, the last Adam. Uh, He's better than Moses and Joshua, uh, who provide, he provides better rest. Think about this. Joshua, uh, we are told, led them into the promised land, right? In verse chapter 4, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. Joshua brought them into the promised land, but they didn't complete the task. They didn't actually have rest in the promised land because they didn't expel all the Canaanites as they were supposed to. Uh, And so Christ is greater than Joshua. He provides a better rest, and he is better than the Levitical priesthood. Uh, And so that is the new uh, theme that is taken up here, is that Christ is our great high priest. And so we look at chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Christ is enthroned in heaven, we can boldly approach God. And this is better than the old covenant. We couldn't boldly approach the throne in the old covenant. It had to be mediated through a priest who could only once a year go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, And now we can boldly approach the throne uh, because Christ is our great high priest. Why would we turn back and lose our access to God? lose our access to the throne of God. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he then talks about how a priest represents the people before God. And it was only uh, Aaron uh, and his sons who were called by God to this duty, he says in verse 4. So um, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Uh, So the priest must be called by God. Well, then we are told Uh, that Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but God appointed him as a high priest. So it was said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
He also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Christ is appointed by God uh, and unlike Aaron and his sons, Christ is a priest forever. Uh, he, He sits on the throne forever as was promised to David. He is also a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, In verse 9, here in chapter 5, we are told that uh, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what does that mean, that Christ became perfected, Uh, that that having been perfected? Well, remember what we said uh, a few Sundays ago in our study of Jacob and Esau. Uh, when it talked about Jacob uh, being a plain man, and that was the same word that's later translated in the King James as perfect, Uh, and we said that it actually means complete or mature. That's what's being said here uh, about Christ. John Gill in his commentary says, having completed his obedience, gone through his sufferings and finished his sacrifice and being perfectly glorified in heaven, he became the author of eternal salvation. So when Christ had completed his work, uh, he had authored our salvation for all who would obey him. And so he's called by God as a high priest. Uh, He is our high priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll say more about that in a moment. But beginning in verse 12, uh, we have another warning. This is our third warning passage, and this one is uh, against apostasy. Uh, We're told that uh, the people that he's writing to have become dull of hearing, he says in in verse 11. Well, then in verse 12 and verse 13, we find out they're babes. They're immature. They have not reached completion or perfection. They should be mature, he said in verse 12, but they're not. And so they're unable to distinguish the difference between good and evil, he says in verse 14. So he's kind of chastising them. You should be mature by this point, but you're not. Uh, And so in verse, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, he is encouraging them to uh, move deeper into uh, the, the things of the, of the faith and the gospel. Not saying that you move beyond them, but you move deeper into them. Uh, he says that let us go on to perfection. So there's that word again. Let's go on to maturity, to completeness in the faith. He's saying you've just scratched the surface. Uh, you need to go higher up and you know, further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Uh, and so they need to go deeper into the faith. He tells us that, uh, where am I at here? I've lost my place. Yeah, so he tells us that um, he begins in verse 4 through verse 8 then to talk about how it is impossible for those who were once enlightened but have fallen away to be restored. And so there's a lot of questions about what this passage means. But notice the change uh, in pronouns here. Uh, Paul has been talking to them uh, and saying you, 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 and we in verse 3. But then beginning in verse 4, it is those and it is they. Uh, The pronouns have changed. And then in verse 9, they change back. But but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. So... uh, Whatever group he's talking about in verses 4 through 8, it is not uh, the people that he is writing to. Uh, It is they or them uh, who are like the first generations of Israelites who did not inherit the promised land because of their unbelief, we saw in chapter 3, verse 19. But think about that first generation of Israelites. They had experienced the exodus. 
They had been there and seen the Lord descend on Mount Sinai as he delivered the law to Moses. They had seen the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them through the desert. Uh, They had eaten of the manna in the wilderness. And yet, we're told here in chapter 3, verse 19, that they were not allowed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. So in some sense, they had been enlightened. They had tasted of the heavenly gift and become partakers uh, of the covenant community with God, uh, tasted the good word of God, but they had fallen away because of unbelief. And so Paul's, or the author here is talking about those who are acting like that generation of Israelites had. Uh, in verses 13 through 20, he then talks about the blessing of Abraham uh, in Christ, that we inherit in Christ, that we inherit the promises. He had said in verse 12 uh, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so then he begins to talk about Abraham in verse 13. Abraham endured, we see in verse 15. And so we must cling, we see this in verse 18, to our hope in verse 19, who is Christ, our high priest, we see in verse 20. So Christ is superior to Moses. He is superior to Aaron, to the whole of the old covenant. Uh, He's a better mediator. He is a better high priest who lives forever. And so he now begins to expand on that theme, uh, Christ as our high priest. And so chapters 7 through 10 are taken up with this idea of Christ uh, as our high priest uh, over a new covenant community. Uh, So in chapter 7, verse 1 uh, through chapter 8, verse 13, that is his uh, point here is that Christ is a better priest. Uh, In chapters 7 verses 1 through 10, he begins to talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek being a greater priest than Aaron or the Levitical priesthood had been. Why? Well, Abraham had paid tithes to Melchizedek and Levi uh, was a descendant of Abraham and had been in Abraham's loins when that would, was done. And so he says that the lesser uh, always pays tithes to the greater. Uh, and so the greater blesses the lesser. And that is what had happened there with Abraham and Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek obviously was uh, a human that Abraham had interacted with. But in a book like Genesis, where most of the characters are tied to their genealogies, we're not given one of Melchizedek. We don't know who his parents were. We don't, we're not told when he was born or when he died. He's just kind of this figure that appears out of the blue and then, and then disappears back into the ether. And so the author of Hebrews picks up on that, that kind of nebulousness that surrounds Melchizedek uh, and talks about Christ uh, as a priest after this order of Melchizedek that, that lives forever, right? Um, and so... Melchizedek, if we think about it this way, is the type, and Christ is the anti-type. Christ is the greater uh, priest here. Christ is not of the tribe of Levi, we're told, uh, but of the tribe of Judah. And yet, uh, he is a priest. So he's not a priest after the order of Aaron, after the order of Levi, but a different sort of priest. He's the priest of a better covenant, we're told in verse 22. His is an unchanging covenant priesthood we see in chapter 27 chapter 7 verse 24 uh, that he saves to the utmost he saves completely why because he lives Uh, we see this in chapter 7 verse 25 therefore he is also able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him since he always lives 
to make intercession for them. This is different uh, than the old covenant priesthood. There was a whole succession of priests and high priests in the old covenant because they grew old and died. But Christ lives forever. Uh, So he is a, a priesthood who does not end and therefore he is able to save fully. And uh, unlike the old covenant priests, Christ offers one sacrifice. He does not need to continually offer sacrifices. So we see in chapter 7, verse 27, uh, that he says that of Christ that he does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So he offered a better sacrifice. He offered the sacrifice of himself one sacrifice uh, to finish the work of atonement, whereas they had had to offer sacrifices continually. (coughs) In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we see that Christ is a better high priest because he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Uh, The old covenant priesthood was not seated at the right hand of God. They were here on earth with us and needed their own sins atoned for. But Christ is seated with God. He's a better high priest. We're told in verse 5 that those old covenant priests served the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So the old covenant, the old covenant priesthood, all the sacrifices, The whole order of form of worship that they had was but a shadow. It was patterned after the substance which was in heaven. The new covenant, we're told, is better in verse 6 because it is founded on better promises. Well, what are those better promises? Well, if we look back up at chapter 7, verse 28, it says, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. The promise of the new covenant that is so much better than the old covenant is the promise of Christ as our high priest, appointed by the oath of God, by the word of God to be a high priest for the new covenant. Then in chapter 8, verse 7, there's an extensive quote from Jeremiah 31 discussing the new covenant and how it replaces the old covenant. And so we see at, verse, at the end of this quotation from Jeremiah 31, uh, down in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is replaced by the new covenant, which is a better covenant with better promises, a better high priest, a better sacrifice. Uh, The old covenant worship we see in chapter 9, verse 9, was symbolic. It was not the reality. It says uh, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So uh, the Old Testament, the old covenant sacrifices were meant to point us to a greater reality, a greater priest, a greater sacrifice, a greater temple. In verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not 
part of this creation. Uh, that is that he entered into, we're told in verse 12, the most holy place. Uh, he entered into heaven, into the very throne room of God. Uh, and so we had seen in verse 8 that Aaron could not. Uh, it said that the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. So they entered once a year into the holy place uh, to offer a sin of atonement uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, but that was not actually the most holy place. The most holy place was in God's presence in heaven uh, where the, the Aaronic priests could not enter and yet Christ has. And so uh, we see that he is a better priest. Uh, we inherit in him, we see in verse 15, uh, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Uh, and so uh, we're going to get to this idea in just a second, but everything in the Old Covenant was pointing the way forward to Christ. Even the inheritance of the land was pointing forward to Christ. Uh, in verse 22 uh, of chapter 9, we see that there is no remission of sins or forgiveness of sins without a blood sacrifice. And then in verse 23, it says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the copies were the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the things here on earth. The, the, the real thing was the heavenly things were in heaven where God is. And so the sacrifices here were copies. They were symbols. They pointed towards Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. And so uh, if you read theologians, uh, on this chapter, John Owen and some of our particular Baptist forefathers, they will talk about the Old Covenant sacrifices, the priesthoods, the tabernacle, the temple were all types. Christ was the antitype at the end of time who was greater than those things, but the archetype was in heaven. The actual pattern after which they were copied was in heaven where the throne of God is. Uh, and so Christ is able to enter that heavenly throne room, that heavenly holy of holies uh, as the perfect sacrifice for us. And he is offered once, we're told in verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Uh, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So, of course, uh, the Roman Catholic Mass uh, is heretical. They are attempting to offer Christ repeatedly over and over again. He has been offered once. Uh, he does not need to be offered again. In chapter 10, uh, we then see that the law itself is a shadow or a type and that Christ uh, is the actual image, the very image of the things. Uh, and so it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the law couldn't do it. It was a shadow and a type. Christ is the reality. Uh, he's the actual image we were told in chapter 1 in our, in our prologue, the very exact image of God. Uh, so the old covenant sacrifices could not atone for our sin, but could only remind us. Now we're told in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. 
with men who had sinned, and so it was a man whose blood must be shed. And so that was why Christ had to become a man to take on flesh you know, so that he could do what the old covenant could not. Uh, in verse 5, uh, he then quotes, the author then quotes from uh, Psalm chapter 40, which David wrote, uh, and David wrote this prophetically, speaking about God, uh, speaking about Christ, and so it says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, so God said this about Christ, uh, Christ said this, um, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. So this was written by David, but was of uh, and about Christ uh, the Old Covenant is taken away, we see in verse 9. Uh, the New Covenant is established. Uh, and, of course, we think about Christ celebrating the Passover, uh, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples and telling us that his blood is the blood of the New Covenant. Uh, so the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant, the blood of Christ in the New Covenant. Uh, his sacrifice is greater because it is effective and lasting. In verse 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the offering of himself actually does complete uh, our, sanct our atonement and our sanctification forever. Uh, it, he doesn't have to be continually offered over and over again. In chapter 10, verse 19, through uh, the end of the chapter, we then have our fourth warning passage warning us of the dangers of rejecting Christ. In chapter 19, we're told to be bold in Christ uh, with faith in verse 22 because he is faithful in verse 23. Uh, that we are to love and stir up one another in verses 24 and 25. Um, and we're told that those who rejected uh, Moses, in verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? So do not reject Christ. If you rejected Moses, that was bad. To reject Christ is even worse. And so we are uh, to persevere in the faith. Uh, we are to Remain steadfast. In fact, he tells us in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It would be fearful indeed to reject Christ uh, and to fall uh, into the hands of a living God apart from his mercy and apart from the salvation that is found in Christ and to suffer only his wrath. They have already suffered some, we're told in verse 32. Uh, they have sacrificed uh, and so they should continue to persevere and to endure in the faith. Uh, and then he says in verse 39, uh, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So once again, just like the previous warning passage, uh, he's warning them here of the danger of falling away, but then expressing confidence uh, that if they are truly believers, if they truly have faith in Christ, that won't happen. Uh, they, they will not draw back, uh, but will believe uh, to the, the end, to the saving of their soul. Chapter 11 then begins a new uh, section in the book, which is to then describe the nature 
of the type of faith that perseveres or persevering faith. And so, of course, we have the hall of faith that we're all very familiar with in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 is a very well-known verse. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, It's the substance, the reality or the ground and foundation of the things we hope for, which is what? our eternal inheritance, as he has said repeatedly. It is the evidence or the certainty of things not seen. Things not seen in the past, John Gill points out, uh, what things that we have faith in that we can't see that happened in the past. Well, the eternal counsel of God before the foundations of the world in which he elected us to salvation, uh, commonly known as the covenant of redemption. In the present, uh, Christ's life, death, and resurrection in this present age, uh, but we do not see those things, and yet we believe. And in the future, of course, uh, our eternal inheritance in the consummated kingdom. Uh, and so we share faith with all of these people who are listed here in chapter 11 for us. And it begins uh, at the very beginning and goes through uh, quite a bit of the Old Testament story, speaking of various uh, men and women and the faith that they had. Uh, and the whole point is, is that we share the same faith that they did. In verse 39, at the end of the chapter, we get a sort of summary. It says, in all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Uh, So they had faith uh, in things hoped for, but they didn't receive uh, the final promise. They looked forward to Christ's day eagerly with anticipation, uh, but they had to wait for it. They lived and they died uh, without seeing it come to fruition. We were told in in verse 10 here that Abraham had looked forward, uh, that he had looked for, he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, that he longed for a heavenly country. He was looking beyond uh, the promised land itself uh, to the the end to the consummated kingdom. Uh, G.K. Beale says the promised land, as fertile as it was, was but a shadow of what would transpire in the future. Uh, Our inheritance, their inheritance in the promised land was a type uh, pointing forward to our inheritance in the kingdom. Uh, And so we can see that these people, these men and women of faith, did great things in verses 33 through 35, um, that they through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and it goes on. But they also suffered, we see in verse 35. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, uh, tempted, slain with the sword. Uh, So, we see that they suffered as well. And so we share their faith. We have the same sort of faith they do and the same promises. uh, And so we should persevere just as they did. In chapter 12, uh, he then continues this theme of persevering faith uh, that we should endure just as this great cloud of witnesses had. uh, And so we should run the race with endurance that is set before us and look to Christ who himself endured Uh, suffering, uh, we are told in verses 5 through 11, is for our sanctification. It's not, if we experience suffering in this life, it's not a reason to turn back and think, well, this isn't isn't working. 
Well, the saints in the Old Testament suffered, we were told in chapter 11. Christ suffered. If we suffer, it's for our sanctification. It's not a reason for us to turn away from the faith, but rather to thank God that he is working out his perfect will in our life. Chapter 12, verses 14 through 29 is the fifth and final warning section, uh, warning us that without holiness, uh, it is impossible to see God. Uh, And that through Christ, we have come near to a holy God. And so we must heed the voice of God, serve him with reverence and fear because he is holy. Uh, and I want to look at chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I mean, this is really uh, the climax of the entire book right here. The old covenant people had come to Mount Sinai. They had come to these things that we are told are but shadows of the reality that is Christ. And we have come to the reality. Why would you turn back to the shadows? That's his entire argument summed up right there. His final exhortation then comes uh, in chapter 13 and verses 1 through 6, uh, an exhortation to holy living, the holiness without which we will not see God. And so he tells us uh, some of the things that are involved in that, uh, brotherly love, hospitality, uh, all these various things that are part of our holy living. In verses 7 through 9, he encourages us to follow the leaders in the church, to follow their example and their faith, uh, to turn back from false teaching and legalism. Uh, And then in chapter 13, verse 14, uh, he says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Well, we were told in chapter 11 that Abraham sought a city that was to come. And so our faith is like Abraham's. We're seeking the same thing that Abraham sought. And so we are to hold firmly to Christ by faith just as Abraham did. Uh, And then he closes uh, with this benediction in verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ is greater. He's greater than the old covenant. He is greater than the tabernacle or the temple. He is a greater sacrifice than the sacrifices that were offered by the old covenant priests. He is a greater priest than they were, a greater mediator than Moses was. He is the sovereign Lord, not just a servant as the the angels were. Christ is greater. So don't turn back from Christ to lesser things. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. Let's pray.